In the most basic sense, to track is to attend, to be alert to the signs of another, whether human or animal or element, and responsive to their calls. This is a form of worship, but it's also a form of love, a method for overcoming the numbness or the disconnection that allows us to screen out the killing of the world. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Lisa Wells, author of Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. Like most of us, Lisa has spent years overwhelmed by increasingly urgent news of climate change on an apocalyptic scale. In Believers, Lisa has asked not for solutions to this every life-sized problem, but for alternative ways of living on our damaged planet. Believers tracks the lives of people who are dedicated to repairing the earth, people who are moving forward despite humanity's wish or want or need to backtrack. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in Spokane, Washington, at the Spokane Public Library in partnership with the 2023 Get Lit Literary Festival, where Lisa appeared as a participating author. Lisa Wells is the author, most recently, of Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World, a finalist for the 2022 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Her debut collection of poetry, The Fix, won the Iowa Poetry Prize. You can find her essays in Harper's Magazine, Granta, N Plus One, The New York Times, The Best American Science and Nature Writing, and in Orion Magazine. She lives in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to The Right Question, Lisa. Thanks for having me, Lauren. I want to talk first towards the the subjects of the book, the people that are, are populating this book, why and how you chose the subjects you wrote about. Um, I think this is a question of process and research, but I'm wondering how you came to know these people that, that are chronicled here um, and why you chose to collect them in the way that you did. So I'm going to answer this question in the way that I probably, in one shape or another, will answer every question you ask about the book (laughs) now that I'm a couple of years out from it having been published. Um, And that's that I didn't really have a very deliberate process because I, um, for those who don't know my work or me, I was trained only as a poet and training is kind of a stretch. Um, (laughs) So I was learning to write this kind of book while I was writing it. Um, I have no formal training as a journalist or nonfiction writer at all. So, um, But to your question, I first learned about Phoenicia Medrano, who is the figure that I write about in the first chapter, um, through my friend Peter, who I grew up with and um, dropped out of high school with and went to this wilderness survival school with, which is also one of the threads of the book, this backstory of having been a young um, radical environmentalist and wanting to learn how to live lightly on the land um, with the help of my friends. So Peter had told me about Phoenicia, and I just proposed writing an essay about her, and this was one of the first pieces of prose I'd ever written. Um, <laughs> what, what, what drew you to move away from poetry in that, in that way? Why write a piece of prose? Why write an essay when you could maybe tackle some of the themes in poetry? 
I think because I admired it. I especially liked these sort of immersive journalistic, but really like literary journalism forms. So, you know, all the new journalism work that came out of the 60s and 70s where people were living with communities and then the product um, felt more like reading a novel than journalism. Um, so I want, I just wanted to try my hand at something that I had long admired. Um, and then once I was kind of, you know, introduced to this world, I ended up basically just listening to my subjects tell me, you know who you should talk to is this person. And a lot of the figures in the book um, came, it was sort of like a game of telephone. I just followed them down the line. Um, and then one community would give on to another. So not very deliberate. And in the end, though they're living in very uncommon ways, and they're certainly unique people uh, with, you know, from the vantage of a couple of years out, I think it's actually a pretty narrow subset of of folks living on the margins doing this this thing. They're all sort of interconnected. So by no means is it, um, you know, a global survey of all the work that's being done on this front at all. It's actually pretty niche. Um, <laughs> niche, yeah. I like that word. <laughs> uh, let's give our audience, because we do have people in the room with us here, a sense of, you know, the kind of people we're talking about. Will you tell our audience and our eventual listeners um, a little bit about Phoenicia and, and where she stands um, and what she was doing? Sure. So let's take it back to when she first came onto my radar. So I had heard from some rewilders who I knew. If you have never heard of rewilders, um, it's, well, there's sort of contention about who they are, but my friends describe it as uh, a way of, a context for interacting with the natural world, a way of thinking about uh, reciprocal relationships with the natural world, what might be one way of putting it. And like, that's where your mindset was when you came to Phoenicia. Exactly. Um, so, but I'd heard about this woman who was living out of a covered wagon and she had this crew of basically young queer kids who were traveling with her and, um, working on replanting these edible roots in the desert is how it was, how it was described to me. Um, and that was fascinating to me, and I and I wanted to learn about what work they were doing, um, but I really didn't understand anything about her mythos or any of the kind of philosophical underpinnings of their work until I went out and spent a few days in their camp, um, because they would form a camp during the winter, and then they would um, become basically mobile through the spring and summer and fall, um, and they would travel these circuits um, working with plants and surviving on the plants as they were working with them and planting seed. And um, and part yeah. of that ethos is if you are picking berries, if you're picking plants, if you're harvesting, you're putting back. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea is that you, you know, you're eating these berries, for example, and your, di your digestive enzymes are scarifying the, um, the coating of the seeds and making them more readily available for germination. And when you defecate them in, into the ground, you're also providing fertilization. So, you know, there's really like no part of your interaction with these um, plants that isn't in some way being leveraged toward the health and betterment of that plant community. You know, so when they're not just ripping um, roots out of the ground. They're harvesting them at very specific times, you know, when the plants have the best chance for um, 
repopulating. So they're dropping seeds back in the hole that they've just dug. And um, so that this is always like part of the consideration. So that so that's the first group of people that I went out and spent time with. And then that sort of led on to um, a, what turned out to be a pretty big community of radical environmentalist Christian or eco-Christians um, that end up becoming primary figures in the book as well. Um, that was something that I didn't anticipate upon, you know, cracking open your book was the amount or the number of people whose relationship with the land was maybe not predicated on, but certainly grounded in Christianity or religion, some sort of like spiritual faith in that way. Did you anticipate that when you went on this journey? And and how do you feel like that spirituality? I keep saying spirituality, but it was Christian. It was like a, a their Christian faith, really. Um, how do you feel like that plays a role in both their, their ideologies, um, but also their role in the book? So first, let me say, I'm not a Christian, and I wasn't um, probably much to the astonishment of some of my <laughs> readers, because it's it's a weird part thing in the book that it becomes such a central theme for somebody who isn't religious to, to bring in so much of this. And, um, you know, I can't, I can't claim to have been entirely, again, deliberate in that choice, but those were the stories that I was following, and I followed it as far as I could. Mm. Um, and even Phoenicia had been an itinerant preacher, preaching this sort of esoteric apocalyptic gospel that was centered on the idea that you were a sinner if you were not giving back to the earth as much or more than you took. Um, so her whole, she had completely, you know, she'd read all of those Bible stories in service of that one ethic. Um, and that was fascinating to me. And then, you know, I think initially I was drawn to the eco-Christian movement because having grown up, you know, in leftist activist circles, my associations with Christianity were like exclusively, you know, all of the sort of negatives that we get from from the culture, you know, um, intolerance of other people and the prosperity gospel and those kinds of things. So um, it was very intriguing to me that there was this whole subset who read the Bible um, as an argument against empire and that it was actually um, sort of an instruction manual for people who wanted to push away from empire and all of its destructive um, ways of operating in the world. Um, you know, whether we're talking about caste systems or um, exploitative relationships with the land to push off of that um, and go out into the wilderness and, you know, to be in relationship with the least of us and these sorts of ideas. So, um, and it's not like there aren't other traditions within Christianity that are liberatory in that way. I mean, there's so many, but um, this was the first time I'd heard it applied specifically to how we relate to plants and animals. And, um, and they just had a pretty developed sense of how these um, biblical passages and ethics spoke to ecological thinking, which just was, it felt like very rich territory to me. But also part of the reason I was interested in it is because if you come from an intact culture that is living um, 
indefinitely in reciprocal and sustainable relationship with a place, then you don't you don't need to disavow what you come from and find a new way to live, right? <laughs> um, but the way they were reading their foundational religious text was as, you know, an instruction manual for pushing off the gravity of a destructive system and finding a new way. And that seemed uniquely apropos to our moment because so very few of us anymore live in interconnected reciprocal relationship with our place, right? Um, and it's hard to do. It's hard to fight the gravity of, you know, the systems that govern you, but also the systems that have organized your being. Forgive me if I misunderstood kind of where you come or came from, but it sounds like you were a little bit cynical, maybe of organized religion, specifically Christianity, right? Did meeting with these people and, and coming to know them and understanding how these ideologies were intertwined for them, did it soften you towards Christianity and, and those ideas? I think it, um, well, certainly it cured me of thinking that I knew anything about, <laughs> about it, you know, outside of like a very um, superficial peripheral engagement. Um, but I think, and I think I even say in the book, what moved me the most was the idea of um, a kind of intelligence being transmitted through human art, <laughs> that the, that the, luminous possibilities of a piece of verse could travel through generations and help people who are experiencing in some ways, and in other ways not, but in some ways an analogous crisis to the people who were experiencing at it at the time of the writing. Um, that just gives me chills, you know, as a person who loves poetry. <laughs> um, and I guess poetry is sort of my religion, or it was. Mm. Um, and I talk in the book about how I had... Um, a very keen sense of connection that felt. Um, so when I was a little kid, I spent a lot of time out outdoors and by myself and had a sense of being in communication with a kind of presence. And that presence, whatever it was, I didn't have much of an idea about an identity or a name or a will or anything like that, but that I was perceived and that I was perceiving. And, um, that was probably as close as I've ever come to a confident faith. You're listening to A Conversation with Lisa Wells. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I want to come back to this idea of what your text is. And you did say that you wanted to read a part of the book. And I'm wondering if maybe that's now's the time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, we can, and we can kind of get into um, yeah, a specific theme in the book about um, attention and worship and devotion. Great. So just to set this up, this is, um, and this is kind of the outlier chapter, which I'm sure we will talk about. But I... At the survival school that I went to as a kid, um, one of the main practices was tracking. So we would track animals through the woods, and this was something we were all to apprentice to, and there was a lot of philosophy around tracking. Um, 
And I sucked at it. I mean, I was just like the worst. <laughs> I was the worst at everything, honestly. <laughs> Why do you think that is? God, who knows? Um, I mean, in some respects, it's because I was I wanted to spend my time reading Allen Ginsberg and smoking cigarettes and, you know, like drinking coffee and talking about art. But I was, you know, I was my idealism, you know, my idea of who I wanted to be was out of alignment with what I was actually interested in. So I'm sure I was sort of self-sabotaging to some extent. But I was also kind of a wimp and I was cold all the time. I just wasn't very <laughs> hardcore, you know. Um, but my friend had been raving about this tracker that he was apprenticing with named Fernando Morera. And I decided to go to one of these trainings, one of these tracker trainings, to see if maybe I could be taught. Maybe I wasn't hopeless after all. So this is the second night um, after we've been out tracking all day. When night came again to the yurt, Fernando hadn't diminished an iota. He held forth and smoked passionately, while the others, hung over from the night before, bone cold from the intermittent rain, climbed into their sleeping bags and slipped into unconsciousness. I wandered toward my tent and paused a while at the edge of the wood to watch the nearly full moon strip off her cloud. A dull line snaked through the meadow where some creature had passed from sight, and my eye caught on the twitching blades. Maybe Fernando's skills were supernaturally advanced, or maybe he was just the most dogged guy in the field. Short of vanishing down a trail myself, I didn't know how I would know if he was, quote-unquote, the real deal. But I felt certain that some virtuosity was speaking through his body. It was as if the memory of his missions lived in his limbs. The language he used to recount them was almost unimportant. Attentiveness is the natural prayer of the soul, wrote the 17th century philosopher-priest Nick Malbranish. If we believe him, it follows that whatever commands our attention will determine the form of our God. If we mainly train our attention on the screens of our devices, that's one kind of prayer. If we train it on the dirt or the birds or the faces that we love, that's another. Most of us run a gauntlet of rotating concerns with little agency over the convulsions of our minds, or else we forego agency entirely and remit our attention via any number of substances to a high. In any case, our preoccupations become objects of worship. In the most basic sense, to track is to attend, to be alert to the signs of another, whether human or animal or element, and responsive to their calls. This is a form of worship, but it's also a form of love, a method for overcoming the numbness or the disconnection that allows us to screen out the killing of the world. Naturalists describe this relationship like a kind of cosine law linking attention to intimacy and intimacy to care. A precept of the Senegalese environmentalist Baba Diome is often quoted. We won't save places we don't love, we can't love places we don't know, and we don't know places we haven't learned. If that's too crunchy for you, try the Tom Clancy version. The most succinct recipe for intimacy I've read came out of a book by a former spy recruiter for the FBI. According to the author, the formation of intimate relationship depends on four elements, proximity, frequency, intensity, and duration. Sentiment isn't really part of the equation, neither are good intentions. Relationships depend on a renewing investment of presence and time. 
When tracking becomes a daily ritual, intimacy develops between the tracker and the earth, whether or not they conceive it as such. Fernando says, the ground will tell you a thousand words about the person you are looking for, but those thousand words can't be read from a distance. You've got to go down to your hands and knees to see it. In the face of ecological collapse, tracking might strike you as a small and insignificant intervention, unless you believe, as I have come to believe, that it is our very disconnection, our habit of abstracting and objectifying the natural world that has brought us to this brink. To track is to overcome that estrangement, to once again feel with the many beings on which our lives depend, and so the casual killing of the planet becomes impossible. That's one of my favorite passages in the book. I'm so glad you read it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, you write at the end of that particular chapter that Fernando had no interest in what tracking had to say about interconnectedness with the earth. So you are gleaning this philosophy for yourself while you are with him or in, in retrospect. Um, and I'm wondering, when you sought out Fernando... What what were you, what was your intent in that? Did you did you imagine that tracking, um, inextricable from the earth? Obviously, you're you know looking at tracks and and signs on the earth of of someone having passed through it. I'm I'm curious about the surprise in that. Then, um, yeah, he he wasn't really concerned with the interconnectedness that you are trying to bring out in this chapter. Mm. Yeah, and I, I I guess I'm speculating because he's never ex- like actively expressed that interest. He might he might have it, and I certainly I wasn't. But he asking. didn't say it while you were. No, with him, and it's right. not how he frames it. So, right. um, what was humbling about Fernando for me, um, in that he wasn't interested in all this highfalutin philosophy, was that. It, it really didn't, the outcome was still the same. Like he was, because he was showing up day after day to the same place in all kinds of weather, no matter the conditions and with total devotion, he developed a sensitivity to and attentiveness to the land that self-professed naturalist um, trackers I'd known ever had dis- demonstrated. So um, point being, I have a habit, like a lot of people, to live in my mind or to live in ideas. And I was really interested in finding a way to force myself into the, into, you know, material acts, um, into my body, into boots on the ground experience. You write in your introduction to believers that this book, and I'm going to paraphrase and not quote you directly, but it's a pilgrimage into the territory of thresholds of territory in between. And I'm curious how you think about this idea of thresholds of in-betweenness, how they're addressed in the book, you know, outside of the introduction, but how you confront and think about those spaces of in-between in other areas of your life too. So this is a question that is I'm I'm sort of always I'm holding in a new way right now because I'm teaching a class, um, a writing class on thresholds. That's how we're approaching the material. And I think when I started the book, when I started writing it, I thought of like, you know, this kind of collapse idea, the idea of the end of the world, which is so often what gets people into learning about, you know, things like permaculture, or rewilding, or um, wilderness survival, et cetera. And that was the mythology that I was indoctrinated with, was this idea of a collapse, that there would be this sort of demarcation of the time before and the time after. And um, and it's also a very 
I think Christian idea, the idea of, of the end times and the, and then whatever comes next. So, um, that wasn't presented to me as such at the time. And now I just think, um, that in-betweenness is everywhere. There, everything is a threshold if you look at it closely enough. Even within stagnancy, we find like you know, transformation. Um, but certainly there are moments, watershed moments, where it feels like more change or more transformation or, um, yeah, more of a shakeup happens. It's more pronounced. And um, this might be one of those moments um, it this feels meaning that way. like the Anthropocene? Yeah. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's not it's not all bad, you know? I mean, in many ways, I think it's, it's long overdue, you know, like these layers upon layers of reckoning that are happening right now in the culture. And, um, and you know, the, the root of apocalypse is to unveil. And, um, and I think that is the experience of a lot of people. It's not so much that um, the reality has shifted. It's not like a hundred years ago it was okay to, um, you know, take more resources than you're giving back. It's not like that was ever sustainable, but now we're sort of made to look at it because the fallout is in front of our faces. So, um, yeah, that's that's how I've come to think about it in terms of the book. This book has been out for what a couple of years now, twenty twenty one. Yeah. What haven't you talked about with other people about the book? Whether that's like an internal conversation, you know, the, your feelings <laughs> about the book, or um, yeah, what questions maybe were you anticipating being asked about the book that you just never were asked? Wow. One thing I will say is that there are a lot of people out there right now who are devoting their days and passion and energy um, and work to, you know, repairing damage, to planting seeds for future generations, to, um, you know, helping other people live better lives. And, um, and they're imperfect and, um, they have limited resources and they're just people. Um, and yet they're out there doing it and they're not always public figures or vocal online or writing books. Um, they're not the Bill McKibbins or Michael Pollins of the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, I don't want to reach for false hope or pat kind of feel good things, but I do want to just acknowledge that that is an image that I hold in mind um, as often as I can conjure it, that um, you don't have to be perfect to serve the future, to, to roll up your sleeves and just do something in service of a happy, healthy, abundant future for all people and all beings. So um, I think sometimes it can be overwhelming to to know the scope of the threats that we face and, and to know, you know, your own smallness in that. And it's understandable to become overwhelmed by that and, and disconnect and say, you know, what do I know? What can I do? Um, the end of the sentence is not, you know, let that go and get out there and go get them. Uh, the end of the sentence is, if you want, the world is waiting um, and you're welcome. Hmm. 
And that you belong. I mean, I think a lot of us feel like because the structures that we have inherited and that we were born into and that we participate in are so damaging that we are toxic. <laughs> I just think it's important to remember that you also belong on Earth, you know. That was Lisa Wells talking about believers making a life at the end of the world out now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Look for more information about Lisa at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in Spokane, Washington, at the Spokane Public Library, in partnership with the 2023 Get Lit Literary Festival. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.